We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. Welcome back. It's the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always, my co-host Nick Filato. They were here to do a little bit of an early recap on the 2022 draft class. Look, I'll be the first to tell you, you can't really evaluate a draft class until three years down the line. But what you can do is evaluate what you've seen already after one year and project to what you might see three years down the line. In addition to that, we both thought it was important to address this class because it is the class, right? Joe Shane's not going to have another class during his tenure where he gets five and seven. It's just, it might, he might, but it's highly unlikely he's going to have a class where he has five and seven. It's highly unlikely he's going to have a class with multiple third round picks. His draft capital was insane in this draft, in his first draft. And because his draft capital was so high, it has to be a hit. Like this class has to, year one, marred by injuries. We'll talk about some of the players who did play, but as we move forward with this year two, year three, year four with this class, it has to be the hit. This has to be the lifeblood of the franchise because it was their biggest capital draft. And so we're going to talk about some of the players that were selected by the Giants, some of the players selected around the Giants, and things of that nature in this podcast. But before we do any of that, Nick, how are you doing today and anything you wanted to add? Dan, this draft class, first off, I'm doing excellent. Thank you so much, as always. But this draft class was interesting, right? Let's try to reflect back on right after the draft when the Giants, day one, Evan Neal, Kayvon Thibodeau, we know that this draft is going to be judged ultimately on the development of Evan Neal and how Kayvon Thibodeau progresses throughout his career. But after that, it was a little bit lackluster in terms of just, I feel like, how people perceived it. It was a lot of draft picks that a little bit of unknown guys, guys who were deemed reaches. I don't know if ultimately that will be proven throughout time. I think there are a lot of high upside players, a la Joshua Zudu and a Cordell Flott, as we'll discuss throughout this podcast. But I did find it interesting that Joe Shane, according to the draft boards of draft Knicks like mm-hmm. Mel Kuyper, definitely deviated from public consensus and went with the guys that he wanted. And that's exactly what I freaking want in my general manager is not to go with public freaking consensus, but go with the guys that you best think will fit this roster and best fits your long-term view. Yeah, it was interesting from that standpoint. He drafted a lot of the players that the Giants have spent a lot of time with, that they met with, that they got a good feel for who they were, and if they were going to fit smart tough and dependable because that's what they want. And that's something that, you know, the last regime claimed to have a lot of interest in character players, but then went ahead and drafted Kadarius Tony and DeAndre Baker. So their actions didn't add up to their words. This class, this regime has tried a new approach. They're backing up their words with their actions. I'll say this about what you just mentioned. I'm more in between on that on as far as, you know, going against the consensus versus kind of getting your guys because I do think, and this is a joke, I've run long-running joke I've had with my dad. Shout out Ron Schneier. He said like four or five years ago, like it's great because he's a huge draft guy too. I and mean, you know, we used to like look at the consensus draft board by uh, who does that? Arif, uh, right? Arif Hassan. Arif Hassan does a good job, and that'll compile. Like it's not just like the Mel Kuypers of the world. It's like the PFFs, and it's like the people who are watching the film on this too. The Dame Brew, like the good guys. No offense to Mel Kuyper, I'm not a huge fan of his draft analysis. McShay either. I think they're both pretty met at best. Um, if then that's being nice in my personal opinion, but from the good guys too. And, the, and, the, and, you know, he'll look at that consensus board. And my dad always had the long time joke, like the Bengals literally just go down this board and just, <laughs> and just snipe value at every, and you would look at some of the Bengals draft, like Hubbard, 
you know, a player they drafted recently, an absolute steal that a lot of people felt like, you know, like, why was he still there when the bank, they're just like looking at the board and, and picking off value as other NFL teams are doing kind of what we just described the Giants doing, which is get their guy or find a guy that they really liked in an interview process. So I think it can work both ways. I think there's upside to what the Giants are doing. And I think more importantly, it helps you build the culture, but I don't think that the other way is definitely necessarily a bad way to go about it either. I don't know if that's the best way to look at this, though, because who's to say that Sam Hubbard, Logan Wilson, and Akeem Davis Gaither aren't Joe Shane's guys, right? right. Like, yeah, you, can look at a, you can look at a lot of guys who were drafted by the Buffalo Bills who were really talented, and they were found on late day two, early day three, and they were high on consensus, but yet they were still their guys, right? Now, I think the one pick that we can go through here that it seemed like it was a reach and a lot of people questioned it at the time was Wondell Robinson. And there were players who were on the board, George Pickens, who seems like he's um, quite the NFL athlete at the wide receiver position where you can look at him and be like, well, we wanted George, George Pickens would be better for the product on the football field. But I think it's safe to question in terms of how George Pickens was off the field. Now, I don't like saying stuff like that because I don't know. I'm just kind of going off of reports that I hear from the Dane Bruglers and the Mel Kuypers and the Todd McShays and all the kind of the big draft mix. But it, it doesn't seem like George Pickens necessarily fit what Joe Shane wants in the locker room. I'm not always for you always just need the best, most buttoned up guy. But if you do feel like somebody may be some sort of problem on the roster, then I do feel like erring on the side of caution isn't the most egregious thing to do. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Just on the first point, though, for a second, I think it's more of like a larger sample size of the Bengals. It's been like five to 10 years of Tobin, yeah, draft, Tobin drafts. And and they've now finally built like a very good, very strong roster out. And for a while, people were like, you know, they were making the playoffs every year, but they weren't going anywhere because in my mind, because Andy Dalton was a limited quarterback. But a lot of people are starting to sour a little bit on Tobin. And he's kind of brought it back around now that he is Burrow. And, and you could kind of see some of the, you know, true genius in some of those picks like Hubbard and like, like, like um, Logan Wilson, but it's just kind of an overall thing where I feel like whenever there's that guy falling and there's really not the off field reason for it, it's just kind of like 15 to 20 teams before that player took it either. They wanted a different position or they kind of wanted their guy. The Bengals are always right there to take that guy that we all think is the value. And I feel like that's not necessarily been the, the worst approach for them on the Pickens thing. And we'll get to this more as we talk about Wandell, but I still am unsure of if that decision was based on like the off field reports we read. Cause we've learned, like we've learned since like the cave on reports were bullshit. We knew that anyway, but like, you know, there's a lot of BS with the reports. I think that could have simply just been the giants wanted that specific role receiver that Wandell plays for this offense and for kind of where they knew they'd be at with this offense in year one, knowing a, we can't really rely on our offensive line just yet. B, it's a brand new system for Daniel Jones. We know it's going to be a lot of quick passing. We know it's going to be a lot of one read stuff for him, at least in the early going. So let's get him a receiver who can get open quick on one read stuff and without offensive line kind of holding up for five and seven step drops. So I still wonder if most of that was just kind of the the the, the type of receiver Wanda was versus like a Pickens type. Especially if Kadarius Tony was not in the long-term plans. I think right. that really checks out, right? And that but could have been the case. Is- the other thing know. we don't bring no, you're 100 percent correct. Yeah. Another thing that we don't bring up about the George Pickens things, I don't want to focus so much on the Pickens Wandell argument, is George Pickens had a pretty extensive injury at Georgia. He had the torn ACL, he missed a lot of that championship season. But when you just looked at the, the players themselves, when you look at George Pickens, George Pickens looks like a traditional number one type of wide receiver, right? Big, strong at the catch point, physical, fast, can run all the NFL routes. But for whatever reason, the Giants opted to go in another direction. And it could be because of the character. It could be because of the injury. We know smart, tough, dependable. Joe Shane has a sweatshirt of it now. So it actually really means something, you know, solidify that. But I think that's something we're probably going to be discussing for years to come. If Wondell yeah. Robinson doesn't come back from this injury, which really is unfortunate. And it kind of marred this entire rookie class was these just kind of injuries that were a little bit unpredictable. Yeah, a lot of injuries to this rookie class. And on that note, it's also like, you know, when it comes to the Pickens versus Rondo Robinson thing, you can project these guys. This is the problem you have, by the way, when you start projecting injuries, right? Because you can project these guys as injury guys, but then it's like, oh, Rondo Robinson didn't have any injuries in his college career. And now he's torn ACL in his first year. 
George Pickens had this bad injury. Now he's perfectly fine. I remember Rob Gronkowski fell in his draft class because of the back surgery. Did he really have many injuries in the NFL? Not, I mean, he was injured a lot, but he played through most of what he was, what he had Gronkowski. And I don't remember him. Did Gronk ever like tear an ACL? Yeah. Yeah. He, he tore his ACL against the Bengals when uh, I can't remember remember the Bengals, the Browns. Yeah. It was a really dirty hit over the middle of the field. Okay. Okay. So he did have one, but I mean, it was a a long career to, and he was for the most part health. So I, I, and I'm never big on that. Like, remember the whole Evan Ingram's the most injury prone player. Well, now the past two seasons, Evan Ingram doesn't miss a game. I don't, personally buy into it now some it's weird though because then there's like the Kadarius tony right it's like well he is injury prone he's obviously injury prone he goes out there he plays one snap for the chiefs in the championship game last weekend and he's just injured Im- immediately on a cut that you can tell like when you're making that kind of cut like dude like you're gonna you're risking injury when you make that kind of cut that he made i i'm i knew it immediately when he made that cut i was like this dude's out for the rest of the game i knew it i had seen that type of cut before from tony and just the other receivers so it's like it's hard to predict injuries i don't think there's much science behind any kind of like prediction or um, prognostication with it. It's kind of just my opinion, basically luck and the luck of the draw. And unfortunately for chain, this class was mostly injured, but I will say this, Nick, if you told me like the giants who were projected to win five or six games by Vegas, we're going to win nine games and then win a playoff game before the season. We both would have been like, Oh, Joe Shane immediately hit on that rookie class, right? Like it was the 2007 Jerry Reese rookie class. Like they all contributed. They all were amazing. And the reality is like, not really, right? Like Evan Neal wasn't very good this year. Kayvon Thibodeau was great. He was a big contributor for them. Outside of those, outside of Kayvon Thibodeau, though, injury to Wandale, Azudu was good when he played, but injured for most of the year. Cordo a little inconsistent, though. A little inconsistent with Azudu. Yeah, and Azudu was even inconsistent. He was good towards the end. He was inconsistent. Azudu, uh, Flott didn't really play. Bellinger was great, but he missed even like a big chunk of the season. Belton didn't really play, got benched. McFadden tried to, they tried to play him a little, then they benched him. David Davidson injury. McKathan, obviously, unfortunately injury and, and Beavers, obviously, unfortunately, those are both season enders for got started. So they actually made that, made that improvement on the roster without actually hitting on this class, which is interesting, but it doesn't, it, the good news is it doesn't kind of predict what will happen moving forward because anything it's still year one and we still need a lot more time there. It's not predictive. You're correct. And Michael McFadden is the only one here who did not suffer an injury that caused him to miss a game, which is kind so of remarkable. It, it's insane to, to think about. And even with a guy like Kayvon Thibodeau, I felt like Kayvon Thibodeau had a solid rookie season. I wouldn't say it was necessarily a great or an overwhelming rookie right. type of year. I think he's going to be a very good NFL player, but there's still a lot of progress that he needs to attain, which I'm sure that he will, right? Because I, I I really do believe that he's going to put in the work. He's going to put his nose down. He's going to do everything necessary to put himself into a position to progress. I'm hoping Evan Neal will do the same. I'm sure that he will attempt to, but actually progression progressing is something that we'll have to actually just wait and see. I remain high or at least hopeful on Evan Neal. It was not a great start, though, to his NFL career, obviously. And that kind of goes without saying. But we can go through some of these other draft selections from teams in the first round who picked players similar to Kayvon Thibodeau and Evan Neal, a lot just an edge and a tackle. Yeah, let's go player by player, pick by pick, look at some other players selected around them. And let's keep in mind that in these scenarios, we don't just, we're going to compare the players who were selected around them at those positions. But we don't have to just look at that because we know as Giants fans now that the Giants have roster holes essentially really everywhere on this roster. Besides, I mean, there is real no, not really any exception at this point as far as roster holes go, unless you're just going specific position, you could say left tackle. So really they could have gone in any direction there. It doesn't have to just be compare them to the players selected at that position. If they wanted to, they could have taken a Garrett Wilson over an Evan Neal if they really wanted to, right? They still, they would have sucked. I love tackles, but we need tackles. But in general, they need receivers still too. So it's like, they could have gone different directions. We'll look at all that as well. Let's start with their first pick at five overall. It was Kayvon Thibodeau. And the only comparable defensive end who we could look at who was selected after Thibodeau would be, um, why am I forgetting his name? Johnson from the the, the Jets defensive end from Florida Jermaine State. Johnson. Jermaine Johnson. Yeah. Um, so we can kind of look at that, but we can also compare it to what the player selected before him at that edge position did Aiden Hutchinson, Trayvon Walker. So just to go over a few stats real quick, we'll throw out there. Aiden Hutchinson played 953 snaps. Kayvon Thibodeau played the fewest snaps of the, of the two big ones before him. Aiden Hutchinson was 953 snaps. Hutchinson had nine and a half sacks, 53 pressures. 36 stops, which is a pro football focused stat that basically is when you make a a play in the run game that results in zero or negative yards. So that's a big play. 
nine tackles for loss. He also had like what, like three or four interceptions. Hutchinson, he had like a weirdly wild amount of interceptions. I don't know the exact number, um, but he had interceptions to add there too. Versus Trayvon Walker, who had 897 snaps, three and a half sacks, 43 pressures, 26 stops, and five tackles for loss. And then you have Thibodeau with 859 snaps, so the fewest snaps almost a hundred less than Hutchinson and 50 less than Walker or 40 less than Walker, four sacks, 45 pressures, 29 stops four, uh, six tackles for loss. So Hutchinson had a very similar statistical season. I'm sorry. Walker had a very similar statistical season to Gavon Thibodeau. And then Hutchinson kind of had a little bit clearly of a more, uh, a better statistical season than both of them. Yeah. I would say Hutchinson ended up having the best rookie year out of all of these players. Right. And we're just kind of going through some of the sacks of, by Aiden Hutchinson on YouTube, if you were watching there. But we have to consider that Kayvon Thibodeau hurt his knee, sprained his MCL against the Cincinnati Bengals, a game where Darian Beavers got hurt on that Thad Moss cut block on the split zone run. And then he enters the lineup, what, week three? So he missed the first two games. So Hutchinson had that entire training camp to kind of get ready. But I would say the thing that I liked about Hutchinson, because we watched his tape, right? Mm-hmm. He had one primary move that he won with in college, and he won with in college pretty often, and that was just to go inside. He would open up the tackles to the outside and then just come right inside. He had like three sacks, two or three sacks in that manner this season, but he also won high side. He won with push-pulls. He won with bull rush. I feel like he expanded his pass rushing repertoire from his senior season at Michigan till right now, till the 2022 season. Kayvon Thibodeau, I still think there's room to grow. There, Kevin Thibodeau only had four sacks. One of them, he was completely unblocked, or it might have even been two of them. Two he of was them. completely unblocked. Now, I feel like he could have had a lot more production if he wasn't being held so consistently. And I think that should be factored in. And I do think it was an issue where you could see Kayvon Thibodeau would have had a sack, but he was being held. Sometimes it was called, sometimes it wasn't. So that's definitely something that needs to be factored in. But at the end of the day, man, Hutchinson was more disruptive and had a more prolific rookie season then cave on Thibodeau. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Aiden Hutchinson is going to be the better player moving forward. Yeah, I think you brought up an excellent point there. One of my, I don't want to call it knocks, but one of my somewhat concerns with Hutchinson was what you just said. Like I felt like in college, he won the same way. And then it says a lot about him where, you know, year one rookie season, he can develop such a wide array of pass rushing moves early on and a pass rushing plan. Like that's something that he picked up fast. And it's not to say Kayvon Thibodeau didn't do a great job of that, but clearly it wasn't at the same level of of Aiden Hutchinson's. And even so, when we watch the film of, of Thibodeau, I think it's pretty clear that there's still a lot of meat on the bone there when it comes to developing a pass rushing plan, a more creative array of moves. And we've seen him do all sorts of different things at Oregon. Like there were some awesome clips out there, again, especially against UCLA, of him with a wide array of pass rushing moves. And we just haven't seen it as much at the NFL level yet. And I wonder if that's coaching, right? Like, is that possibly just coaching thing? I don't know what goes into something like that, Nick, but it is definitely something interesting to think about. In terms of Trayvon Walker, too, the reason Trayvon Walker was picked before Kayvon Thibodeau really had nothing to do with the production that he had in college because he didn't have a lot of production in college. He wasn't really getting consistent pressure. He was picked because nobody has ever really been that size with that type of movement skills at the edge position. So I kind of understand and all the like crazy stuff like that. Everything. He was truly unique as a prospect. So I always like kind of don't really factor him into this conversation. I don't know if that's fair or not. And it's also just because he's and you're watching just some pressures from him right now if you're watching on YouTube. But it's also because he, he's an interior defensive lineman sometimes. You know, he, he handles a lot of different roles, whereas Hutchinson, even though he's built different than Kayvon Thibodeau, Kayvon Thibodeau and Hutchinson, I feel like have more parallels than Trayvon Walker and Kayvon Thibodeau. Now, looking at the draft class as a whole, Nick. Speaking of where the Giants were at at fifth overall, is there anyone you think now you look back now and also including projection moving forward that was selected after Kayvon Thibodeau that you wish maybe the Giants had considered drafting over Kayvon Thibodeau? No, I don't think so, Dan. I think I'm fine with the Kayvon Thibodeau pick, especially since the Giants had the seventh pick and we might have a more interesting conversation then. But I will say this, and I know other people have said this on Giants Twitter, and I think it's true. I think if Sauce Gardner was around and the Jets didn't take him at four, Sauce Gardner would have easily been a New York Giant and not Cape Thibodeau. I completely agree with that. I don't even think it's worth it. I mean, it's questioning. We would never know. There's no way to prove it. So it is what it is, but it's just speculation. But I completely agree with that. And to take that a step further, I would much rather have a Mod Gardner moving, Sauce Gardner moving forward than Cape Thibodeau. I hate to say it. 
it's not a position thing, even though I would rather have a shutdown corner than a, than a shutdown or, you know, the lead edge. I just think looking at these two players and projecting them moving forward, Gardner's probably going to be one of the two, three, maybe just the single best corner in the NFL moving forward. I don't feel very confident saying Kayvon Thibodeau is going to be the best pass rusher moving forward. I think he can potentially get into the top 15, top 10 range maybe, but we're looking at a total. I think we're looking at a blue chip prospect in Thibodeau versus like whatever the silver, you know, light blue, whatever the chip is above blue chip, the, those rare dudes, the Daryl Reeves of the world for Amon Sauce Garner. And I know the Giants were locked in on him in the process. I know Wink Martindale wanted a corner so badly for his defense. Even when he's talking about Thibodeau, he's basically like one of the first things Wink said was like um, Giants linebacker coach. Now I'm blanking on the name. Who's the linebacker? Drew Wilkins. Wilkins was like, this is how I would build an outside linebacker in a lab. If I was going to, I mean, it felt like even hearing that he's kind of like, yeah, Wilkins was really the guy who really loved him. Right. And I think when it comes to sauce, that would have been Wink's guy. That would have been a guy that he could just put out there and, and it would alter so much of what he can do schematically on the back end with his safeties. And, you know, in general, I think also with his pressures, if he could rely on those guys and man coverage on the outside, like you can rely on a sauce gardener. So it was definitely unfortunate. I don't want to look back at last season, but I do look back at last season and I'll be the first to, you know, me, uh, I'll, I'll give back that stupid Raiders win any day. <laughs> the Giants beating the Raiders and some of those other stupid wins they had last season, the judge year, I give that back in a heartbeat to get that. And it's a good lesson moving forward as to why those meaningless wins and meaningless seasons, those wins and meaningless seasons aren't really as valuable as people think they are. Um, but it is what it is. I mean, that's the draft. Like, and as far as after gave on Thibodeau, I am kind of in the same boat as you, Nick. I don't think I would take Garrett Wilson over Thibodeau moving forward, though that's an interesting one, right? I don't think I would take Drake London, who I really like his film. I started to watch his film for um, fantasy for the Beyond the Box score show we have fan on CBS Sports. And I saw his end-of-the-year film, man. Like, he was separating really well. And I think you yeah. liked his tape a lot more than I did at USC. And so I, I was definitely impressed to see it translate at the NFL level against those NFL corners, specifically his game against the Pittsburgh Steelers toward the end of the season. He should have had, like, 200 yards in that game, but Mariota was just, like, insanely bad in that game. If Drake London was on another team, he would be a much more prominent name in the NFL right now. I think being on the Atlanta Falcons kind of hinders his upside, at least from a perception standpoint, because he's yeah. getting like six targets a game and not 10. Sure. And I completely agree with that. And even with that, I still think I'd rather take Thibodeau over him. I have a little bit of a bias toward receiver position. I mean, I, I understand it. I'm starting to come more around to it than ever, but I also understand the pitfalls of when you draft, when you draft heavy skill position. I mean, Jerry Reese is a heavy skill position drafter and there's so much more chance of injury with these skill position players. They want mega contracts. They don't even like DK Metcalf didn't even let the Seahawks get through his rookie deal without demanding a big deal or he's out type of thing. And it, put so much pressure on them. I feel like when you, when you draft like an edge or a tackle, you can, you can, you can slow play that a little bit more. There's less of the prima Donna thing, less of a chance of injury, but that's not really backed up by any stats anyway. So don't hang on to that one. It's just a, it's just a fuel for me, but yeah, I think I've been looking at the rest of this board, Nick, I can't really find anyone that I would say the giants definitely should have taken over him. Now there are some interesting names down the line, right? Like as you look through this thing, like, Quay Walker would be so fun to have on this Giants defense right now. Not just so fun, like so important, right? Like if we could put Quay Walker in the middle of this defense instead of Jalen Smith this year, how much better would the Giants have been? If he wasn't pushing assistant coaches? Yeah. yeah, I'm not, I'm not, that yeah. <laughs> I don't really know how he is on terms of, of that. There were a couple instances of Quay Walker doing some very head scratching things yeah. up there in Green Bay, but he was a freak athlete. I mean, I'm, I don't think you're advocating Quay Walker over either of those two no. picks for the New York Giants. Just as but in, like, it would trade down and then type of thing. Yeah, yeah, of course. But I do kind of want to circle back a little bit to the Kayvon Thibodeau and those receivers because I would take Thibodeau because I do believe edge is very important. I think the Giants' edge position isn't solidified right now, right. despite the fact that they spent a first and a second round pick in the last two drafts. So I think. That's one reason why I would go Thibodeau, but I don't think it's necessarily a slam dunk. Oh yeah, it's obvious you should have gone Kayvon Thibodeau, specifically because Drake London, Garrett Wilson, and throw Chris Olave's name in there. All three of those wide receivers to me have the upside to be true number one wide receivers, and that's kind of what we're desperately looking for right now right. as New York Giants fans, people who cover the New York Giants. So I think it's definitely a conversation piece. Ultimately, I feel content saying that yeah, Thibodeau would have been Thibodeau's still my guy there, but I definitely don't think it's as um, far apart as we probably initially thought when the pick was made. 
Yeah, that's fair. And then I think anytime you're saying something, a statement like that, Nick, and I agree with that statement, both of us in saying that statement have a little bit of recency bias in that statement. And that's just natural in life. It's hard not to have recency bias. I just saw a great video done yesterday by the established the run social media team where it's like, you know, they, they, they had Christian McCaffrey as their first overall pick in fantasy and all the comments, it's just all the internet commenters like, are you kidding me? I would never draft him. He's injured every year. He'll be injured by week two, like all that type of stuff. And of course he didn't get injured this year because injuries are random and you can't predict them. And it's just like, there is some recency bias because Kayvon Thibodeau wasn't that amazing. It wasn't like un unreal from the start and Garrett Wilson unreal from the start. Chris Olave unreal from the start. Drake London wasn't unreal from the start statistically or like even splash wise game splash game wise. But when you watch the film, you can kind of see that too there. So I definitely get that. And I'm teetering on that, but I still see the ceiling. I still know that the ceiling that I originally had for Thibodeau when we evaluated his film, I remember like we were a little different on him. I, you had Hutchinson as your edge one. I actually had Thibodeau as my edge one. And I still think he has a higher pass rushing ceiling than Walker or Hutchinson. But he still has to get to that ceiling, right? Like, like just like you said, there has to be more of a pass rush plan with Thibodeau in year two. He has to have more, you know, the technique has to get better. The hand uses have to get all those things that go into making a great pass rusher have to get better in year two for sure. Yeah, I'm right there with you with Kayvon. And I I was really high on Kayvon Thibodeau too. Like I had a top 15 grade on him and I didn't give a lot of top 15 grades out. Like I didn't give 15, 15 grades out last year. There were a lot of guys that like, I was just like, look, they're going to be top 15 picks, but I don't know if their value would be there in a better draft class. Right. right? Like I liked, I think three or four of those receivers. I loved Stingley. I loved sauce. I loved Hutch. I loved Thibodeau and I liked Neil cross and Iquano, but Iquano, I was a little bit like, dude, pass blocking might not Dang. be his, his best thing, but Charles cross is another name that we should probably get into here in a little bit. Now back before the draft, I wanted Evan Neal over Charles Cross. I still maintain that, but I think Charles Cross had the better season, even though the statistics in terms of pressures and things of that nature doesn't necessarily bear that out as much, right? And also Cross, I think, played the entire year, whereas Evan Neal missed several games right. with a knee injury. But now it comes to that seventh pick. And before we get into comparing Neal and Cross, do you think, Dan, the Giants would have been better off? And this is all revisionist. This is all hindsight 2020, all that, all those cliches, right? Do you think the Giants would have been better off taking a wide receiver at seven and then figuring out right tackle with like a, not Mike Remmers, but a Mike Remmers type of individual? Tyree like Phillips. Phillips. Right. Wow. Jinx. Buy me a Coke. Yeah. But yeah. So what do you, what are you, what is your feeling on that? Yeah. Again, when, with that, when it comes to answering that question, it's all about like the short term versus long term. And you know, I always like to think of these things long term. Like for 2022, the season we just had, yeah, the Giants probably would have been a better team with Garrett Wilson and Tyree Phillips over. Evan Neal and and uh whatever Richie James whatever you know any of them we ever considered to be the worst receiver I think David Sills <laughs> yeah David Sills for a little while so for 2022 the answer is definitely yes as far as what is actually important which is not 2022 or 2023 it's the future it's always about the five years it's always about the 10 years again this is goes deep into the Daniel Jones discussions and the Barkley discussions more importantly or more specifically I should say but as far as that goes, it's it's open the it's up in the air for me. So I'll say this. I think a lot of people were torn on this whole three tackle debate. You and I both saw this class as a three tackle class with Neil, Aquanu, and Charles Cross. Other people I follow saw this as a Quanu and Neil and thought and thought Cross was not worth it. We were high on Cross from the start. And when I think back to like what Cross was what Neil was and what Aquanu was when we evaluated them all. I still think Cross probably had the thing I've always considered as most important with these offensive tackles. And it's the quick feet. It's the smooth feet. It's the smoothness of that feet, lower body. And, and the issue was like, oh, well, he played in that air raid. Will it translate? Right. Oh, well, you know, he's not the biggest dude. He's not the longest dude. He doesn't have the prototypical size frame that like an Evan Neal has, or even Aquanu. He doesn't have the punch in his run blocking. But man, that smooth footwork and that ability to mirror. And I felt like even the reps where it wasn't that great from the start for, for, um, for, um, not Neil, for Cross when we watched him at film, he had a great, he did a great job of just kind of like re anchoring in the middle of that set or just like doing his best to just, he would get pushed, he would move back a little bit, but then he would resettle and he'd keep that guy in front of him so consistently. And it wasn't like the issue, he didn't have the issue that Neil had, right? Of like lunging or being off balance. 
And so I think back on that a little bit and I were, and I wonder about that. And I know the stats said one thing, but I think anyone who watched the film, like from Brandon Thorne and all those offensive line guys I followed, they, they all said he had a pretty good year. And I think for us watching Neil, it's pretty safe to say he did not have a good year, right? Like we, we watched the film. That was not good tackle play by any means. It wasn't really good in the run game. And it certainly wasn't good in the pass game with Evan Neal. So that's the question for me. It starts there. Let's get into the receiver part after, or just any other position after. But I first want to start with just the big three there, because we both had Neil as our OT one. Do you still have Neil as your OT one? Are you still happy to that? Would you have preferred them maybe take a cross instead? We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think I'm right there with you in terms of the long term. And I think the projection of Neil, if he can fix these issues, which seem to be somewhat fixable, according to people who coach the offensive line, people who know a lot about the offensive line. And I feel like if he fixes those, Dan, he's going to have the highest upside. If he yes. can just play within the framework of his freaking body, not lunge at the hips so often, and then just kind of be a little bit more confident in his technique and not panic as much, right? He sees that speed. Oh crap, I got to open my hips and now I'm opening my hips and my and I'm starting to turn like this and now he's going inside. What do I do? We saw that a lot in 2020 with Andrew Thomas, right? And then we started seeing Andrew Thomas just become more consistent with his technique, started trusting himself a lot more and now he's turned into one of the best left tackles in the league. We need that from Evan Neal. I think there is a path to where Evan Neal can become that, but he needs to fix these little technical issues that I think he's going to put the work in, as we say so many times, right? He's going to put the work in and hopefully he can going into the offseason. Now, do I regret having him as my tackle one? No, I, I don't because I feel like there was a lot of projection with Charles Cross coming from the air raid. I don't know how fair yes. that was, but they didn't run the football all that often. And I feel like he's from what I've seen. And I watched a little bit of Seahawks film just because they played the Giants this year. He's a pretty damn good run blocker. He's not a liability at that. He's mean. And I felt like he was mean in college. It's just, and I'm not so sure Evan Neal was that good of a run blocker this year. I had a lot of issues with Evan Neal as a run blocker. I feel like when he frames you up, like him and Mark Lewinsky actually have some really dominating. Yeah dominating reps together, but it wasn't all that consistent. And a lot of those were them blocking a four eye, a four, or sometimes even a three technique. I felt like Neil did a good job getting his hips around, crossing the face of the three technique, and then assuming the position to the inside portion of that defender, allowing Mark Lewinsky to climb up to the second level. And I felt like they were good in those combo situations, but there were times when if you're running to the right side and Evan Neal is going to block on a, a zone type of blocking concept, right. so he's stepping to the play side, stepping to the right side where he would engage, say a, a five technique or even a four technique directly over the top of him. That person's moving laterally as well. Then that's when his feet start to turn, but he starts to just, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see me, he starts to put his hands up and he doesn't bring his feet with him all that frequently, right? And then he's lunging and then people would just kind of shed him, allow his momentum to go forward. And then they would work around him and then execute their run fit or do whatever they had to do. And that's an issue with him in the run game. And that's something we acknowledged in his 
in the scouting report, man, we discussed how, look, Evan Neal, I feel like he has the highest upside and I totally understand where we came to that conclusion, but here are his limitations. Here are the things he has to work right. on. Here are the things he has to get better. And literally every single one of those things were the exact things that transpired throughout the season. Yeah. And it's just, I feel like it was a worst case scenario for yep. Evan Neal. You can't teach that size. You can't teach the athletic ability. You can't right. teach the length. You can't teach the power, but you have to teach the technique. And that's what he needs to work on. And that's the question I have moving forward because it's like, I, I don't have any regrets having Evan Neal as my OT one, because I think draft in general is a big time projection game. And you want to get those guys who have the frame that he has and the athleticism. Let's not, I'm happy you brought up the word athleticism because he is insanely athletic too, and has pretty good feet, moves his feet pretty well. But at the same time, we've already now seen one year of evidence in the NFL where it suggests Charles Cross is, has converted to the NFL level, right? Like he didn't need that long time to transition from the air raid. And he's very controlled, Charles, Charles Cross. He's always been very controlled. And that's something that like I does stand out to me. I wonder if, you know, I would love I have not watched any film on Orlando Brown Jr., Nick, but I would love for someone to tell me about his tape or even for maybe that to be something Evan Neal could learn from because he's also a guy with a really lengthy frame, Orlando Brown Jr. And I'm sure they're they're different in, in some ways athletically and just build-wise, but I know he's six foot. I know he has that same type of frame, and I don't think he has those issues to his game, or at least I haven't heard him to have those issues. So I'd love to look at maybe some of those like longer six foot seven, six foot eight type tackles and see how they get around the you know, the, the pitfalls of having that kind of length when, when it comes to being, uh, you know, lunging at times and staying balanced. I feel like Brown and I haven't done a thorough analysis of him, but he wins ugly. He does win ugly. And he always did at Oklahoma too. Yeah. He doesn't necessarily have to be technically sound in terms of his aiming points because he knows how to just win. And there comes a point where when you know how to just freaking win, just allow the player to win. It doesn't have to be perfect from a coach's standpoint. So what you just described about Orlando Brown is exactly what I thought Evan Neal would be in the NFL. And he still can be. It's year one. Like, we only have yeah. one year of it. But that's exactly – I always – I thought he'd be the guy who wins ugly and you just can't get around him and he's just too big to lose type of player. That was my whole kind of hope for him. And I already saw it play out with Orlando Brown who they said it wouldn't work with. Um, and so we'll see. He can still maybe get there, obviously. That's the hope. He has to get there. But And here are the stats on the three players. Mm -hmm. Iquanu, Cross, and Neal. Iquanu – Six sacks allowed, 27 pressures, but he only had 552 pass blocking snaps, took 13 penalties. He had 552 pass blocking snaps because if you remember the Carolina Panthers were literally throwing the football like 20 times a game. <laughs> yeah, did yeah, the second half, they just ran the hell out of that thing. They just ran the hell out of De uh, Deontay Foreman and, and uh, Hubbard. And then Cross had seven sacks allowed, 50 pressures, which is a decent amount, but he did that in 738 pass blocking snaps right. with nine penalties. So a decent amount of penalties, if I'm not mistaken. And I don't know if these are counted, but I think a lot of those were false starts. I'm not sure if PFF counts those as, as penalties. Cause I remember there was a game on national yeah. television where he had like three false starts. We're like, bro, what the hell are you doing? Right. <laughs> and then Evan Neal who played right tackle. The other two played left tackle. He had eight sacks allowed 52 pressures, but he did it in only 524 right. pass blocking snaps. So that's less than Ike Mikwanu, And he had seven penalties and take it for what it's worth. It's pro football focus, but it's some sort of standard. Don't know their full grading system, whatever. He was the lowest tackle though, in the league of tackles that played 50%. Yeah. They played 50% of their snaps overall or in pass blocking overall and in pass blocking. Oh, not wow. run blocking. Yeah. yeah where, so, where did the other two fate, uh, um, finish grade wise you have that or no it's fine if not uh they they were not that low i know that okay. much and i and i did it from like the center and the guards too i incorporated them and then he was the third lowest total offensive lineman behind questenberry and, and i don't Kenyon green was down there i know he had a really bad uh year for for houston according to pro football focus but regardless of what pro football focus as we watch the film people who have been listening to our podcast this entire year you guys have seen the film on youtube and we have witnessed evan neal sliding off blocks we witnessed him failing to sustain blocks we witnessed right. him on the ground way too often we witnessed him getting beat high side not protecting his inside and just having a complete lack of consistency as to how to execute his blocks and i felt like there were times throughout the year where veteran pass rushers knew how to kind of toy with him and beat him mm -hmm. and manipulate him. And that can be learned with experience. And that's another kind of way I'm looking at it. Like hopefully with more experience, with more time, he can develop into the guy that we hope that he can become. Cause right now after year one, it didn't look pretty, but that doesn't mean after year two, we're going to feel the same way. 
if after year two, we feel the same way, that's when I think you can maybe start discussing moving him to guard. But the conversations to move him to guard right now, to me, are vastly premature. Yeah, vastly premature and would be devastating, honestly. If that if they yes. have the Giants have to move Neil to guard, it's a it's a massive miss in the draft. And it's gonna hurt their long-term projection because they need it's very hard. To, part of the reason why I'm like okay not going Garrett Wilson over Neil, even though I think there's a really good and let's just say Garrett Wilson or Drake London. I think if push comes to shove, London, Wilson, Olave, I'd probably go Wilson because I really like his game. But it so might too. be London. It's tough. It wouldn't be Olave for me though, based on the size, but I like his game a lot too. Um, I still think I'd go with Neil because now there's been some recent examples that not disprove this, but start to make you think like, oh, maybe it's starting to widen a little bit like Christian Darisaw. But for the most part, to get these tackles, you need to have these premium picks. You need to be in the blue chip range of the draft, not in the back end of the draft. So I think you can get a wide receiver that's a blue chip in the back end. I, mean, I know AJ Brown, there's countless examples of wide receivers, DK Metcalf, and I could go on and on, selected outside of the top 10, 15 range, then end up being great at that position. Tackle to me is, is a little harder to find. So because of that, I still like the idea of that, I guess, Nick. Um, but at this stage of it, it feels a lot more likely that those receivers are going to be guaranteed hits versus Neil, who still seems, I think there's still more of an opportunity for him to even just be not a bust, but someone like that we're not looking at as like a top tier player. And one more thing to factor in just in terms of the wide receiver argument, wide receivers right now are transitioning to the league much quicker than tackles. Tackles right. typically True. have very a good bit point. of it. Yeah, a learning curve. Like the first year is going to take their bumps and bruises, especially for somebody who was thrust into the starting lineup and just started right tackle, suffered an injury, all of those things, which kind of lead me to believe that Evan Neal will be okay in the long term. Of course, we have to wait and see what happens. But guys are just stepping into the NFL as wide receivers and rookies in an offensive league where the rules are bent for the offense and they're just having success because their talents can really be shown. Whereas tackle it's difficult you're going right up against an edge rusher right. and like you can you can even have like 60 snaps that are great right and then you have two snaps that suck and if those two snaps you surrender sacks everyone's gonna be like look he sucks so that's another like kind of yeah. perception thing that we can look at yeah and anyone who's followed the senior bowl coverage at all this week can think about it from that perspective look at all the clips you've seen of the one-on-ones with receivers versus the corners what's easier for a receiver to get this separation versus the corner and then you see the tackle or the offensive lineman against the d lineman and what looks a lot harder it looks a lot harder for these offensive linemen in these one-on-one -on -one drills to protect versus these receivers to get open in these situations. So it's obviously a lot easier to play the skill positions too. Yeah, we, we bring this up every year when the Senior Bowl rolls around. But remember, whenever you see those one-on-ones and a receiver's cooking a single lone cornerback on an inside post route, that yeah. it's not necessarily anything that's going to translate it's almost to the nothing, right like there's never just like open i mean occasionally you get like a zero a cover zero this is only going to work against yeah. like cover zero like what are we doing here exactly now it's still there's some merit to it i get it but it's yeah. very very hard on the cornerback and also conversely it's very hard on the offensive tackle because the defensive lineman can run to either edge and there's no yes. other <laughs> there's no lineman that that is uh to the side of of the player yeah, it's not yeah it's overstated for sure okay let's get to day two now we start here with what the giants did on day two and they had the 38th overall pick on day two and they decided to trade down and pick up an extra pick with the falcons and at, in that spot the falcons took ebiketti a pass rusher we really liked that at penn state um he was selected one pick after jalen petrie a player i really liked Three picks or two picks after Roger McCreary, the corner, a player that both Nick and I liked a lot. And then one and then four picks after Christian Watson, a receiver who I had insanely high on my, if you look back at our wide receiver rankings, I had him really high and a player who I, I'm just going to say straight up bluntly. I would much rather have than Wanda Robinson moving forward. I don't even view them in the same class personally. And I'd rather have him than Pickens too. I think this kid's going to be phenomenal after watching that speed translate to the NFL level and that length, you just can't build a receiver in a, in a, in a, in a lab like Christian Watson, but they make the trade back. After they made that trade, Epiketti goes, Kyler Gordon goes, the corner from Washington, who I don't think the Giants were interested in. Boy Maffey goes, the edge from Minnesota, who I don't think the Giants were interested in. Kenneth Walker goes, who obviously the Giants were not interested in. Andrew Booth, who's a corner who we heard the Giants might be interested in. 
I believe he had a really injured first year, right, Nick? I know he was eventually landed on injured reserve, and that was a big problem in his profile. Everyone was like, this dude, yeah. you know, like he looks like part. He, he looks like a top 15 pick, but the injuries are, are tough. And then at 43 overall, the Giants kind of shocked the world, shocked Nick, me, like, Nick had uh, actually, I want to give Nick you credit for this. You had Wando Robinson as one of your sleepers, but you had him as more of like a day three sleeper, right? And so, no, no, I had a second round grade on Wando Robinson. You had a second round grade on him, but we in the podcast where we went like day three, guys they can get on day three, we mentioned him and along guys that we were projecting in that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think his, I didn't think the NFL would value him in that manner as much. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So that, and then, and then, and that's part of this process where you have to know what the NFL values too. You can't just go out and just make these picks without considering that at all because then you're losing value. But anyway, the Giants take Wondell Robinson surprises a lot of people. So let's start with comparing. We'll do the same thing we did the last time. Let's compare it versus the other receivers selected after him and then, and, and before him, right? Because I want to, I want to say, because if the Giants wanted to at 38 overall, they probably could have traded up and did exactly what the Packers did because they traded up to get Christian Watson if they loved a Christian Watson, for example. So first, compare him to the receivers that that, that that were selected around the Robinson range or after if you find someone you really like. Um, and then kind of we'll go into who they could have taken if they went a different route position-wise. Before I do that, I find this interesting because I've heard rumors, and I don't know how much of this is bullshit. It could all be baloney, yeah. right? that the Giants were interested in Roger McCreary. And I'm also wondering if they were interested in Christian Watts. I don't know because he was raw. He was coming from North Dakota's program, but he is a mm-hmm. phenomenal athlete. And I do think the Giants were looking to get a playmaker. And I think all the points that you brought up earlier about Wondell Robinson, they really check out. I think they didn't appreciate Wondell Robinson, right? But do you think the Giants had interest in a player like Roger McCreary who had all the man coverage experience covering the Jamar chases of the world and all of those sec players. And then when the Tennessee Titans selected them, they felt comfortable trading down. Cause they didn't just trade down once they traded down twice. They traded down, allowed the jets to select the running back Brees hall. They traded right. down like two spots. And then now the Atlanta Falcons came calling for Arnold Ebiketti. And that's when they traded down from 38 to 43. Oh, you're right. They had 36 and then yeah. moved to 38. You're right about that. So yeah, they took, they, they could have had Petrie actually. Yeah, they could have had Petrie. And Petrie had, I think, an up and down season for Houston, but he he's a I think a gonna be a good modern player in terms of someone who can kind of like a Julian Love. Maybe hopefully I think the projection might be a little bit better than Julian Love, but that type of player for the Houston Texans defense. But I am curious, man, did Joe Shane want Roger McCreary and was Christian Watson kind of grouped in there? Would they have even traded down if that were the case? I think so. I don't know about specific names like McCurry, though. I think that's probably the best guess at who it would be because he even said in his post-draft presser, if I remember correctly, he basically said like, we had a lot of plans going into day two and it wasn't like we were just trying to trade down. Like we had, and that makes me think there were guys they wanted. They weren't there. They first trade that made that first trade down. And then with this, I think after they made the first trade down, they did have in mind, they would like to trade down again which would make, cause I don't think it was like, Oh, we got to get Petrie or, or Boston. Oh no. Now we didn't get Petrie. Now let's trade down again or something like that. But I do think it's very likely McCreary was that guy. It might've been Christian Watson as well. I hope it wasn't Watson. Cause I would have loved to have Watson on this team moving forward. And that would suck. But McCreary, who I think from the film, I've seen some film cutups of him, some people, cause I follow some people who like do film stuff on the Titans. He had a pretty good first year. There were some really good reps. I saw of him. Um, same issues. Some of the issues that we saw in, in college have translated, but He's someone who I think can have a pretty good future in the NFL. So it is interesting to consider if it was like a plan A, plan B thing with the Giants here. But having said that, let's after of the of the receivers drafted around or after Wandell, would you be more comfortable with any of them currently on the Giants roster? So it's a little bit difficult because John Mechie, who was drafted the pick after Wandell Robinson, yeah. unfortunately was diagnosed with cancer. So he missed the first year. So we got to rule him out. Hopefully everything is okay. And then you have... Four wide receivers picked in five picks. You had Tyquan Thornton at right. 50, the Patriots. And then Philadelphia went with Cam Jurgens at 51, center. And then 52 was George Pickens. 53 was Alec Pierce to the Colts. And then the Chiefs took Sky Moore at 54. I think out of these wide receivers, George Pickens is the one that you're always going to gravitate towards. And I think he's the most talented. But if we're going to rule him out for the issues that he had prior to entering the NFL draft, I think Wondell Robinson might be the guy that I would most want out of all of those players. And I liked Sky more too coming out, but I still think Wondell Robinson fits with what Brian Dable wants a little bit more. But the whole Sky Moore situation, the fact that he couldn't find the football field 
as a wide receiver all too frequently for the Kansas City Chiefs when they had a bunch of different injuries at that position yeah. with Juju and then Hardman, and then they traded for Kadarius Tony, who's injured basically every second. Like Justin Watson, eighty-five percent snaps. Exactly. I, I think is a little bit maybe of a learning curve for him because remember he came from a smaller program as well. Mm-hmm. So I think out of all of those guys, I would choose Wondell Robinson if we're excluding George Pickens. Yeah, these are hard questions to answer because I think after one year, in my opinion, you shouldn't change too much of what you had pre-draft after just one year. There are some examples where you should, and one of them is about to come up for me. So Sky Moore, for example, I this is like an like I'll go back to Clyde Edwards-Alaire, right? Like I watched Clyde Edwards-Alaire at the collegiate level at LSU, then I watched him at the NFL level. It didn't take me long to say this this guy the speed did not translate. It just did not translate, and sometimes that just happens for the level of competition, the jump. From what I've seen from Sky Moore, I don't think it translates to the NFL. I'm going to be out on Sky Moore most likely in fantasy because of that. I don't like what I've seen from him when he has gotten snaps. So he's actually the one I wouldn't take. I would probably take every other receiver over Wondell Robinson. You know, I was incredibly high on Tyquan Thornton. George Pickens, obviously, I wouldn't even consider. I would take him snap over Robinson and and Pierce as well. Mechie, I didn't like over Robinson. I didn't really like Mechie's game in the first place. So I wouldn't take Mechie. But the reason why I would take all these players over Robinson is I think you can find a Wondell Robinson a lot easier than you can find these types of other receivers in the draft. The ceiling is obviously higher with those types of receivers. I know what the Giants wanted. They wanted a specific type of player to play that Richie James role. Wondell Robinson was starting to break out a little bit, and then he had that 100-yard game. And I like him for that reason. And I think he can be a really good player for the Giants as he recovers from the ACL. He's already ahead of schedule. I do kind of like what I've seen early from him. But as I go into this draft and I look at like the tank Dells of this draft, right? Like those types of guys, really this entire receiver class feels more they're, like the Wanda Robinson like build. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, now how are we going to get the X? We had a chance at a prototypical X in Pickens. I, I don't know if the off-field stuff played a role or if it was just that they were locked in and honed in on finding a Wondell Robinson for this offense. And I think if they were, by the way, that does speak volumes to what they thought about Tony at the time, right? They may have already been out on Tony at that point if they're drafting that because Tony should be that guy. He really should be what Wondell Robinson was. Um, yeah. We brought this up, dude. Look at how Kansas City is using Kadarius Tony. And I think that tells you a lot, a big reason why he was not going to have success in a Brian Dable coach. Right, right, right. Because you got to be smart and tough and defending. He's they're just gadgeting him in that offense, and that's fine. That's and that's one nine touches. That's why his yards. That's why his yards per route run is so damn high. It's because when they put him out there, so many of the plays are designed to go to Kadarius Tony. Yes. And that's easy for a receiver to pick up versus, you know, having to run the whole route tree and and be a big part of the offense. Like they tried to have him be in the Giants and it just didn't work out. And that's more of just a bad, really, really, really bad evaluation by Dave Gettleman at the time um, and his whole staff. Which was so uncharacteristic of what they preached. And it's something we brought up a couple, yeah, yeah, a couple podcasts ago. And I remember, man, I remember us trying to rationalize it. And I was like, oh, well, you know, they had to, had to check out, you know, they had to really cross their T's and dot their I's. And I just don't think they did. They just fell in love with the fact that he has some of the most elite change of direction skills that we've ever seen. I think there's a couple guys in this class who might not have the change of direction of Kadarius, Tony, but it's, it's damn close. And tank yeah. Dell, the guy you brought he's up is definitely one of them. One of them. Dude, he's yeah, so he's, he's clips of the senior, but he's so tiny, right? Like, he's like 163 we, pounds. that's the thing. He's like five, seven and a half, 163. Like, can the giants even afford to take him in this draft? Probably not at any point. Can no. they really afford to take him? And that not sucks to say, like, how are we going to already say a guy that we like at a position? We definitely need receiver. We're almost already ruling him out to be honest, because what are you going to do? What are you going to put him on the roster with Wondell Robinson? Like, what, what are we running out here? Like, how's that going to work at all? And that's the problem with the Wondell Robinson pick for me in a nutshell. It's like, I know I can find Robinson's. I don't know where I'm going to find the George Pickens again, the Taekwondo Thornton, who I like a lot moving forward, Christian Watson. So the Taekwondo Thornton one is, yeah. sorry to cut you off. That Taekwondo Thornton one, I think you're really onto something. And I wish he went to an offense that was more conducive to early wide receiver success. Because from everything I've heard, the, the offense that is run up in New England, oh, and I don't know God. how much the Josh McDaniels offense was different from the absolute higher fire the back Patricia Joe Judge offense was. Oh, but I hear it's very hard for young players to translate into. What does so, that say about Belichick in his later years, too? Like the fact that he let that happen for a year, it's crazy, man. Like he he has ties to so many coaches around the NFL and he came up with a plan that was Matt Patricia calling the plays. You even heard like some of the players. I think I heard like Julian Edelman bashing yeah. it on a recent podcast, like 
Julian Edelman was obviously watching Patriots games, part of the organization. And he has friends when, in the he has friends, you know what I mean? Yeah, that they're exactly. calling him like yeah, this in is the locker bullshit. room. Yeah. Like and so that, yeah. So that's that thing. How about if we look at other positions and think about other players the Giants maybe could have taken? One that comes to mind who has taken like multiple picks after him is Luke Fortner, right? Like, what if we put oh. Luke Fortner on this line right now at center and we didn't have a Wandell Robinson and we just had to rely on Richie James for a year and then we find a Wandell in this draft or something like that? That's one player who comes to mind. And I know he was taking what, 22 picks after Wandell Robinson, but I'm not so sure I wouldn't want him over Wando Robinson at that pick. And Ed Ingram was pretty interesting in the film that I watched of him against the Giants. I thought he was strong. I thought he could be definitely someone who would be an addition to this offensive line. So I look at those types of players and those, those players come to mind immediately for me. I mean, we don't need him, but if you go a different route and you take, I mean, this is all hindsight stuff, right? You can't build the perfect draft after the fact, but if we go a different route and we take a Garrett Wilson or a Drake London or an Olave over Evan Neal, and then we come back and we take a, take Abraham Lucas, like, are we in a better position right now? Probably. Right. Yeah, exactly. And the whole Luke Fortner thing that cuts me to my core. Cause I was such yeah, a, we loved him. We we loved Luke Fortner. And I remember I didn't even know who he was. I was watching Darian Kennard tape. And I was like, who the hell is this center? And when oh. is he draft eligible? And I was like, oh, crap. He's in this draft, this Luke Fortner kid. I started pounding the table for that kid back like last January. And I'm glad the NFL respected oh, they him. They caught up. Yeah, they knew. Uh, yeah. Respect him Rag now, man. Like those are two of the centers I've watched over the last. And you loved Creed Humphrey. I I didn't really watch much Creed Humphrey at the time enough as as much as I should have. But two of the centers that I've watched in recent years, just doing this, that I just knew right away were going to translate were Ragnow and Fortner. And it's it's, it's something about their anchor, something about their their strength, their toughness, the way they attack these defensive linemen. It's just you knew it with him. And I just wonder right now, like, would they be a better team with Fortner over Robinson moving forward? Just because I know they can find a Robinson at some point. I think he was like two picks before Josh Azudu too. He was two picks before Josh Azudu Fortner. Yeah, it was close because I remember being like, yo, the Giants could get Luke Fortner. And then they drafted Josh Azudu. And I didn't do any film on Josh Azudu. So I was a little bit unfamiliar with how he was. All right, Nick, we're ready going a little long here. We did plan to, and we're going to wrap this up with the first three picks, the core picks, those top 50 picks here, you know, Robinson, Neil, Thibodeau. These are the three picks in the top 50. And then next podcast, we'll do another draft review where we'll hit the rest of these players and our expectations moving forward. But for this one, let's wrap things up by just talking about your expectations and our expectations moving forward for these big three. Kayvon Thibodeau, Evan Neal, Wondell Robinson. I think when you have top 50 picks, they have to be above average or at least solid starters on your team. I think Kayvon Thibodeau will reach that above average mark. I think Wondell Robinson say that the recovery goes well. He can be a solid contributor who could be a PPR machine. I, I think that. I think he's going to be in that Richie James role, only a much more talented player than Richie James with maybe some more plays designs, especially if the Giants offense continues to expand its passing attack out of 11 personnel, him operating in the slot. Then it comes down to Evan Neal. Look, I think Evan Neal will be fine, but I'm not basing that off what I saw from film, right? Because mm-hmm. the film was rough. Mm-hmm. I know he has all the traits, So that's one thing. I know that his character suggests that he is going to put the work in. He's never kind of given us any sort of impression that he won't do any of those things. So with that, the coaching, all the work he's going to do in the offseason, it's more me just hoping that everything's going to click for him and he'll kick in the gear similar to what Andrew Thomas did. But that's not me basing it off of film. I don't think that's unfair at all. And I would say when you have two top seven picks, they have to be blue chips. They have to be great players in the NFL. When you have a 43rd overall pick, there's a ton of busts that are drafted in the 43rd overall range. So just to get a good contributor out of 43, to me, is a good thing. So I'll say this as far as setting the bar with those expectations and that foundation. I have a, I still have a lot, a lot of high hopes for Kayvon Thibodeau moving forward. I think for him, he's got the right mindset. He's got everything. He's already proven to me that he's going to, for the rest of his career, the Giants be a really good backside run defender. And to me, that shows effort. That shows something you can't teach. That shows something that teammates can rally around. And I think it's more important than people realize. Setting the edge, that for him, he has some good moments. He's had some eh moments that in that regard uh, year one. And I think that I'm not sure will improve too much. I don't know if his build is perfectly set up to be an edge-setting run defender. But hopefully he can get better there with technique. Now, the more important thing is the pass rushing moves and the pass rushing overall, because that's what you want out of an edge rusher when you take one at five overall. And I think I'm very confident that he will get better as he develops a plan. Like, even if you think of it just from the overall perspective, like Aiden Hutchinson did such a wide variety of things to lead to his nine sacks and more pressures than Thibodeau. Well, he did it 
against a guy like Thibodeau, who was a little bit more raw. He already started to use all those different pass rush moves. I'm not saying he's maxed out by any means, Aiden Hutchins. He's going to be a great player in the NFL, but I'm saying there is more meat on the bone for Thibodeau. So I feel really good about that. Will Evan Neal, their second top seven pick, be a blue chip guy, be a great player in the NFL? I'm not as sure about that one. Uh, um, look, I don't want to judge it all off of the year one film or anything like that. But my old, my expectation for him was always like more floor than ceiling based with Evan Neal because I never felt like he was the prototypical six seven guy who's three forty. Because when you think of a six seven three forty guy, Nick, you think of a guy with an insane anchor and who's like a mauler in the run game. But he was never that at Alabama, my opinion at least. There are some good reps, like you said, like some good double teams, go in and things like that. But I didn't really ever think of him as that prospect. I always thought of him as somebody like you said earlier. I thought you did a great job of explaining can win ugly and can consistently win ugly. And just, you can't get around him in the past game. And he's given up like no pressures a game. And he's just that type of guy that's, he doesn't, you know, doesn't make the box scores. He's not making these crazy clips that circulate Twitter of him pancaking some dude or doing something like that. But he is just not giving up many pressures. I still think he can get to that point. And that point is fine for me. I consider that to be a great tackle to me. That's a great tackle. I'd rather have that than the pancakes and the highlights and the flash any day because to me your passing game can stay on time and stay in rhythm if you have a guy who wins ugly at right tackle so that's where i'm at with him yeah go ahead a lot of it is adjusting to speed and we referenced yep. that a little bit earlier but if you remember at alabama man his hands they weren't they would they were such a they were more of a huge contributor towards his success whereas right now it's not necessarily that it's not like he's terrible with his hands, but I think that he is trying to match the speed because people in the NFL edge rushers in the NFL are so much faster right. that it's not allowing him to use the correct hand timing, the correct hand placement. And those were kind of some of the traits that just stonewalled sec defenders. Cause we went through some of the clips, man. He had like judo artist hand type of movements yeah. where he was baiting people. He was throwing like a little jab, getting them to commit. And then he would just latch onto the chest and eliminate them. He did that several times throughout college, but now I feel like his feet are moving so quick because he's afraid to get beat around his edge that he's giving that inside that inside move up towards his inside, similar to what Andrew Thomas did in 2020, but he's not latching on because he is compensating for the speed rather than actually kind of being dialed into the fact that he knows where he can strike and when he can strike. All that kind of needs to come together, the feet, the hands, the eyes, the understanding of when to attack all that needs to be in sync and i just don't think it is right now because he hasn't necessarily acquired the rhythm on when to strike a lot of these edge rushers i think that's a great point i think the overcompensation that you're referring to is a lot in his lower half and that's something that you know he can definitely fix as he moves forward as well and also you know there's two things we can we can lean on here which is one we've already seen a giants player get much better with his hand usage and then lead to a breakout season that's dexter lawrence so we know what a big jump in hand usage can do for a player on this roster two i just think a lot of this with neil is just a lack of confidence right now and that's going to happen when you go to the nfl and right away you're you're, you're i don't want to call it a turn style but you're getting beat in bad ways early like he was in week two and week three against the cowboys like some of those games some of those games where he was just really bad early on and that when that type of thing happens early you might lose your confidence and that's something he'll have to gain back by just by, by like you said timing things up better and as he performs better the confidence will rise so I think those are important things to consider with Neil moving forward. Then finally, with the 43rd overall pick with Wondell Robinson, I love what I saw in that Texans game, man. But, and I still think like this can end up being an okay pick. I wouldn't personally never take a player like Robinson at 43. I think you can get them way later in any draft class. So it's just not something I'd ever do. I understand why they wanted to do it. They wanted quick production. Again, like I said, for where they were at, they felt like, we need to get a dude on the field right away who can play in a quick one read offense where we're just running mostly quick game and most of our stuff off play action fine in the short term. Long term, I'm just not taking that type of prospect ever at that position unless I think he can ultimately be an, an Antonio Brown type who can win on the outside and be that type of receiver. Now, having said that with Wondell Robinson, there are things I really like about his game. There are things I don't like, Nick. I think some of the issues we had, Richie James, were catch radius based and were hands catching based. And I think those same issues apply to Wondell Robinson's profile. He has a very small catch radius, and he made some catches that were that he had some catches that were really shaky to me. One of the touchdowns he had on that like uh, pick play against and might have been the Texans or one of the games in that range where he like juggled it and like just got his feet in bounds, tiptoed into yeah. the end zone. That was not how you want to see a wide receiver catch that football. That should be a routine hands catch secured. 
put tucked in and taken in for an easy walking touchdown. And that wasn't the only example of his catch radius and his hands playing an issue. And those were a big issue for him on his tape at Kentucky as well. I think separation will be a good factor in his game. He's going to be a great separator for the Giants. And you always need separators. So overall, I still think that can be a very good pick as well. Yeah, that was the Baltimore game, I think is what you're referencing. But I don't understand what you're saying. And we were, I think the word that we used on the podcast, the adjective was peculiar. It was a peculiar pick. I still feel like it was a somewhat peculiar pick, but I do like the player. And now that he is on the roster, let's hope that he can be maximized. I don't think he's ever going to be a um, true, complete difference-making type of wide receiver, but he also could be somebody who can get 90 catches in a season. It might not be for 1,500 yards. It might not be for 15 touchdowns, but he could be a consistent chain mover. And I think that's really, really valuable. Like a Victor Cruz light type of player. Victor Cruz light, I think, is the perfect type of yeah. uh, way to describe that. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to be Victor Cruz. That's why the light is there, everyone. So, yeah, <laughs> Victor Cruz was the difference maker. <laughs> yep. All right. That's all we have on today's show. This is our draft review part one. Draft review part two. We'll talk about all of the other picks in this class and some UDFAs as well. So thanks again for keeping it locked and loaded on Big Blue Banter. More content coming your way. Have a great rest of your week. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.